This is Finding Center, a daily half hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Great Discoveries. Jenny Hale Pulsifer shares her joy in bringing to light early American stories, showing how history can come alive and be an adventure no less thrilling than that of Indiana Jones. She will give her message entitled Indiana Jones in the Archives, The Art and Adventure. I'm here today to explode a myth. History is boring. Those who believe that myth claim that history is a tedious process of memorizing dates and battles and names, apparently for the sole purpose of answering multiple choice questions on an exam. The stereotype of this approach to history is captured in a scene from the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off. The teacher stands before the class droning, In 1930, the Republican-controlled House of Representatives endeavored to alleviate the effects of the... Anyone? Anyone? Great Depression. (laughs) The Hawley-Smoot Tariff Act raised or lowered... Anyone? Raised tariffs in an effort to collect more revenues for the federal government. Did it work? Anyone? Anyone? No one answers the questions. Half the students are asleep. The rest are in a boredom-induced stupor. Maybe some of you, too, have been forced to memorize long strings of seemingly useless dates which left you with a distaste for the subject. If all history were presented in written or spoken word like it is in this example, we would be justified in considering history tedious and irrelevant. Not surprisingly, I am here to argue that it is neither. One of my favorite historians, Edmund Morgan, said, history at its best is vicarious experience. In other words, it should be possible by studying history to enter other times and other places, to come close to experiencing the past in the way that those who lived it did. That doesn't sound boring at all. I personally came to history quite late. I had the misfortune to pass an AP history test, which got me out of all the required social science GE courses in college. I was an English major then, rather than a history major. And while I loved reading and writing about great literature, by the end of my four years of undergraduate education, I had developed a real history deficit. I thirsted for context. I wanted to know what was going on in England politically, culturally, socially when Jane Austen wrote her novels or Shakespeare his plays. That desire eventually led me to pursue a PhD in history. And once I was well immersed in my program, I discovered that I had a passion for archival research. I found it a great adventure. Adventure may not seem like an appropriate word for archival research. Adventure evokes daring, dangerous, heart-pumping thrills, epitomized by the archaeologist adventure hero Indiana Jones. Here, fresh from snatching a priceless gold artifact from a Mayan treasure trove, he's doing his best to get out alive, while hundreds of booby traps, including a house-sized boulder, go off all around him. Archival research, on the other hand, is most often done sitting down, a position in which your pulse is not generally racing. (laughs) Library shelves rarely threaten to crush you to death, and the hissing behind your ear is not the whir of poison darts rushing toward you, 
but the sound of a fan circulating the dusty air. Frankly, I'm grateful that I've never had to flee from a giant boulder while on a research trip. And I don't do a lot of running other than on the hotel treadmill. Actually, I just walk fast. <laughs> Nevertheless, I consider archival research an adventure, one that has frequently set my pulse racing, not because of the fight or flight reflex, but because of the thrill of discovery. Let me discuss just two aspects of adventure I find in historical research. First, it is an adventure to solve historical puzzles. Anyone who has taken a history class has probably heard the phrase historical context. Sam Weinberg, author of Historical Thinking, points out that context comes from the Latin word contexere, which means to weave together, to engage in an active process of connecting things in a pattern. In an archive, everything is disconnected. You have thousands, perhaps millions of scraps of paper, letters, military orders, court depositions, receipts, orders to constables. You can approach that vast pile of paper in many different ways. You can search broadly by subject. You can dig deeply in one narrow period of time. If you're interested in a specific person, you might look in the various indexes at the archive and round up every piece of paper that mentions him or her put them in chronological order, then slowly work out the pattern of that person's life, recognizing, of course, that the pile is undoubtedly incomplete. Some key events in that person's life may never have been recorded. Some of those pieces of paper have been lost or destroyed. Part of the detective work of historical research is figuring out how documents are organized in an archive, thus learning how and where to look for them. To give you an example of how this process works, let me introduce you to the archive in which I've spent by far the most time in the past decade or so, the Massachusetts State Archives. This archive contains hundreds of thousands of documents. Some of them have been transcribed and published, allowing scholars easy access. The vast majority, however, have not. That means I get to transcribe them, which is an adventure in itself. One of the collections of most interest to me at the Massachusetts Archives is the Middlesex Court Folios, containing all existing depositions and minutes from cases brought before the Middlesex County Court. I also use a far larger collection, the Suffolk Court Files. Given its name, you could easily assume that, like the Middlesex Folios, it contains court records from the Suffolk County Court. It does have those but it also has lots of other unrelated material organized in a way that seems to have no recognizable chronologic or thematic system. Frustrated at the apparent randomness, I once asked the archivist what the organizing principle of the collection was. In reply, I got a short but highly illuminating history lesson. In April 1775, British regulars marched on Concord, Massachusetts, where their sources had reported colonial arms were being stockpiled. They suffered a humiliating defeat at Concord's North Bridge and began a desperate retreat to safety in Boston. The colonial forces laid siege to the occupied city, hemming the Redcoats in for 11 months and doing their best to block any supplies or reinforcements from getting to them. Thus, the British had to make do with what was already there. Supplies of straw used for stabling horses and stuffing mattresses soon ran out. So the regulars sought substitute materials that could, like straw, 
be squashed, stuffed, and formed into whatever at the time passed for a reasonably comfortable sleeping space. They found what they were looking for at Boston's State House, piles and piles of court papers. When the British abandoned Boston on March 17, 1776, a day still celebrated as a state holiday, court officials began the long and still incomplete task of trying to return the court papers to order. So that at least partly explains the strange disorganization of the Suffolk court files. It also provides an explanation for the many absent papers, incomplete court cases, missing verdicts, and the crumpled, stained, and otherwise damaged condition of many of the documents. Those physical objects tell their own history. In a very real way, they connect the past to the present. So, when you work in an archive, you're interacting not only with the documents, but with those who created and organized them, or burned or slept on them, generations in the past. One of my most memorable adventures in the archives took place over the several days I spent at the Massachusetts State Archives transcribing and researching the people and places discussed in this document. Most 17th century documents are not this difficult to read, not so faded and torn, not so minutely written. I was tempted to simply pass over this document when I ran across it while looking for something else. But it was in a folder of letters written in 1676 and 1677, the height of King Philip's War, an Indian-English conflict in early New England that was crucial to my research. So I picked it up and looked at it. I could hardly make out a word, much less string together sentences. But as I was turning the letter over, I glimpsed one word that I could read, Natick, the name of a praying town, a place where Christian Indians had gathered to better practice their new religion. Much of my research concerned these Indian converts, so I continued trying to read. The effort went on for several days. It was mentally and physically exhausting. My eyes blurred and my neck ached. Nevertheless, it was thrilling work. I often caught myself holding my breath, wondering what would come next. Even at the end of it, there were words I still could not make out. But I had been able to transcribe enough to open up a new world, to make connections with other documents I had long since read that helped me understand both the new and the old better. What the letter turned out to be was a set of proposals for the colony government about how to treat the Indians who remained in the colony after the English victory in King Philip's War. The suggestions were draconian much harsher than any policy the colony had followed before. They suggested a dramatic hardening of opinion against Indians in the aftermath of the war. Naturally, I wanted to know who had suggested them, but frustratingly, I couldn't read the signature. Neither could the original archivist, apparently, as there was no entry for the letter in the card catalog. Most of you can probably make out the first two letters. Ed. So now all I had to do was compare the handwriting and contextual clues in the letter with every Ed living in Massachusetts in the late 1670s, and then I'd have a match. It actually took less time than you might expect. Clues within the letter, the writer's mention of his rural judgment and frequent contact with Indians, suggested that he lived on the frontier rather than in one of the more, more populous coastal towns. 
The letter was also liberally sprinkled with Latin phrases and classical allusions. So he was well-educated, perhaps a minister, as all of the ministers had college degrees. My PhD advisor, David Hackett Fisher, suggested that I try looking in Sudbury, one of the most westerly towns in the colony. I found a genealogical dictionary of the first settlers of New England, organized by town, and started reading about Eds in Sudbury. Almost immediately, I found Edmund Brown, the town's minister, educated at Cambridge University in England. I returned to the archive to see if there were other documents penned by Brown that I could compare to this one. There were, four in fact, and the handwriting matched. That was exciting. I felt like I'd unmasked the culprit in a murder mystery. Once I knew who had written the letter and could position it in the proper place and time, I was able to make many more connections with my past research. Once historians have made enough connections to explain some historical puzzle, they write about them and publish them, adding, hopefully, to the larger community's understanding of the past. For instance, the research I've just described eventually led to an article in the William and Mary Quarterly. The article provided my transcription of the letter and an explanatory essay in which I argued that the letter was evidence of a shift toward overt racism toward Native Americans in the aftermath of King Philip's War. That's the big picture, but I made many smaller discoveries along the way. I'll mention only one of them. Well into his diatribe against the Indians, Brown gave an example to prove how dangerous they were. He described an Indian named Swagan who leveled his gun at one bush, saying that he must kill an English man. Later, Brown described another attempt of an Indian, brother to Andrew Pitomy, who boldly took hold of an Englishman's horse's bridle and used some such like speeches. But then, with his truncheon, the Englishman so dressed him that the Indian retired from him. This will probably not mean much to you, but to me, it was a revelation. Several years earlier, I had written an article called Massacre at Hurtleberry Hill. The article described an event that took place in 1676 during King Philip's War. A group of six friendly Indian women and children had obtained permission to leave what was essentially a wartime reservation in Massachusetts in order to pick berries to feed their families. As they picked the berries, an English patrol rode by. They had a friendly exchange. The soldiers gave the women cheese and bread in trade for some fruit and rode on. Soon afterward, however, four men broke off from the larger party, returned to the hill, found the women and children, and killed them all. When the women and children failed to return to their camp, frantic family members approached Daniel Gukin, the English superintendent of the Indians, asking for his help. Gukin provided an Englishman to go with them, probably for their own protection. After two days' search, they found the women and children murdered. One was the sister of Andrew Pitomy. Another was his wife. A third was the wife of Swagan. The rest were their children. Swagan and Andrew Pitomy's brother were the two Indian men who Edmund Brown described threatening Englishmen in 1677. What Edmund Brown saw as barbaric behavior, Indians rudely proclaiming their need to kill an English man, becomes easier to understand when these two distinct cases are connected. Undoubtedly, 
Andrew Pitomy's brother and Swagen were driven by revenge and by terrible grief at the murder of their family members. It was by connecting these pieces, which appeared in completely different collections, that I was able to make sense of what seemed senseless. A door opened, and suddenly I got a glimpse into the anguish propelling the actions of Pitomy and Swagen. Undoubtedly, there are yet more insights to be gained, which will come through my research in this and other archives. A second reason I consider historical research an adventure is because of the opportunity it provides me to get to know people from the past. Some of these people are reprehensible. Some are admirable. I find my life enriched by meeting them, particularly in the case of the latter. Let me give you an example. As you've learned already, my research centers on 17th century New England, particularly the relationship between Indians and English. In the 1670s, that relationship was rent by a brutal war that lasted nearly three years. While the English eventually won the war, the Indians had the upper hand in the beginning. They attacked the scattered colonial settlements without warning, and there was little the colonists could do to prepare for such surprises, other than cram themselves into the strongest house in the village and hope to be able to defend it while the rest of the town burned around them. Indians assailed the frontier town of Springfield, Massachusetts in October 1675. John Pynchon was the leading citizen of that town. His home and mills were destroyed in that attack, and along with his dangerously ill wife, he was forced to retreat to a neighbor's garrison house, already crowded with dozens of frantic people. In a letter to his son, Pynchon commented on his turn of fortune. He said, I would not have you troubled at these sad losses which I have met with. There's no reason for a child to be troubled when his father calls in that which he lent him. It was the Lord that lent it me, and he that gave it hath taken it away, and blessed be the name of the Lord. He hath done very well for me, and I acknowledge his goodness to me and desire to trust in him and submit to him forever. I can't read these words without feeling deep sympathy for the writer. Like him, I aspire to be a follower of Christ, and his words dissolve the years between us. I admire his humility and submissiveness in trial. I feel a spiritual kinship with him. While discovering such personal connections is part of what makes reading and research rewarding, responsible historians constantly remind themselves of the strangeness of the past. As much as we feel we may have in common with those we study, they are not us. 17th century Puritans and 21st century Mormons do have some broad similarities, but they also have profound differences, both religious and cultural. If I too easily assume familiarity based on one shared feeling, I will miss the complexity of the people I study. I may simplify or misread their experiences. As I gather and seek to connect the pieces of a past life or past event, I need to remind myself not to jump to conclusions, because the next piece I find, in the same archive or a different one, may not fit the story I've been piecing together. It's detective work, and no evidence, however odd, can be ignored. I'm reminded of this frequently in my current research. I'm studying a 17th century Indian man named John Wampus, 
who could not be more confusing if he had deliberately set out to mislead future historians. He changed his name when it suited him, sometimes going by John White rather than Wampus. And his casual disregard for facts or intentional misrepresentation created at least one substantial error in the historical record that was perpetuated up to the 20th century. This was the idea that John Leverett, governor of Massachusetts in the 1670s, had been knighted by England's King Charles II. However, it was based on only one document, a letter written to Leverett in Wampus's behalf and probably at his dictation by a member of the King's Privy Council. No evidence apart from this misleading letter has ever surfaced to support the claim. I keep pursuing leads Wampus flung out, finding dead ends, or on happier days, finding interesting connections that help me slowly understand him and the worlds he moved in better. The past is not tidy any more than is the present. Living people we encounter present us with similar puzzles. Some things about them are familiar and understandable. Others make us shake our heads and ask, what? But all of them, the living, the dead, the wampuses and the pensions, are part of the human family. As Carl Degler said, by studying the past, we expand our conception and understanding of what it means to be human. History is good practice in seeking to understand those who are strange to us. In that way, it serves a very useful purpose and can be very much an adventure. But history is also something that we consume in the form of books and articles. Many of you have had history classes in which you've been assigned to read academic monographs, books written by academic historians. Hopefully, some of them have met Edmund Morgan's standard of history as vicarious experience and given you glimpses of past people, places, and events that have broadened and enriched your own life. Perhaps a few of them have been as gripping as a good adventure. Sadly, too few modern works of history achieve that standard. Too few are the kind of history that Morgan talked about, vicarious experience. Too many of them are dry compilations of dates and facts or complex analyses presented in such convoluted and jargon-laden prose that they put off even the most persistent reader. In a word, they are boring. The same could probably be said for every academic discipline. But history has less of an excuse for this failing than most professions. A brief look at its own past as a profession explains why. If you took a survey of departments of history in colleges and universities across the United States, you'd find that about half of them are in humanities colleges and half in social science colleges. Here at BYU, the history department is in the social sciences, but a generation ago it was in the College of Humanities. Which is it, science or art? Clearly, as the division I've described suggests, it's a question open to debate. In the 19th century, a heyday of historical writing, most would have agreed that history, like literature, was an art. Historians such as Francis Parkman and George Bancroft enjoyed a wide readership for good reason. They wrote very well. The decline in this kind of historical writing accompanied the early 20th century move toward professionalization that swept across a broad range of fields, including history. Newly formed organizations such as the American Historical Association, 
established standards of acceptable practice and encouraged their members to be thorough and systematic in their work, to list all their sources. 19th century historians had little use for footnotes. To provide evidence for every assertion, scientific objectivity became the new hallmark of historical scholarship, leaving art behind. The shift to something called social history in the latter half of the 20th century increased the momentum in the direction of science. Social historians abandoned the traditional subjects of history, the politicos and presidents, colonels and kings, in favor of such neglected subjects as illiterate peasants, women, factory workers, slaves, the voiceless of society. To recover the stories of men and women who left nothing in their own words, historians turned to different kinds of sources. Rather than letters and journals, they combed court records, deeds, censuses, account books, and archaeological reports. They counted and categorized, made tables and charts to suggest patterns of historical behavior. These shifts have broadened the reach of history and have brought insights that have profoundly changed our understanding of the past. They have also contributed to breaking history into increasingly narrow subfields, focusing on increasingly arcane subjects. Some of this history indulges in what Sam Weinberg calls esoteric exoticism, specialized literature that may engage the attention of a small coterie of professionals but fails to engage the interest of anyone else. This scholarship, however insightful it might be, doesn't get read. Books that lack the art to engage their readers join the ranks of what historian Jerry Muller calls $20 bill books. What characterizes these books? You could tuck a $20 bill into the middle of one of them, place it on the library shelf, return in five years, and find the bill exactly where you left it. No one had read far enough to discover it. Historians, I might say any academic, who fail to combine art with science merely talk to each other, not to the larger world. But we all know history buffs, people with a passion for history. If they aren't reading academic monographs, what are they reading? They're reading the work of what academics call popular historians. People like David McCullough, Stephen Ambrose, Doris Kearns Goodwin, Joseph Ellis, and others. Many of these writers practice the traditional mode of history, looking at the presidents and generals, the movers and shakers of the past. The wild popularity of biographies of the founders, Washington, Jefferson, Adams, Franklin, confirms that. Some of these writers are trained historians. Most are not. Some of their books are well-researched and carefully documented. Some are not. These failings lead some academic historians to look down their noses at popular history, to dismiss it. As historian Jerry Muller laments, many historians have never been taught that they have a responsibility to their readers to try to write well. They consider it a luxury at best, a diversion from real professional responsibilities at worst. But popular writers of history may be doing more to shape modern appreciation of history than academic historians. The reason why is the one trait that all of them share, art. They are well-written and engaging. They tell a good story. I hope my description of my own experiences in the archives has persuaded you that historical research, while involving long hours in locations short on the exotic allure of Indiana Jones's typical research venue, 
can be both exciting and deeply satisfying. Historians who translate those experiences into the books that the larger public reads can convey that excitement to the larger public, but it requires embracing both the scientific standards of historical research and the literary standards of art. They open up new worlds of vicarious experience to us, expanding our understanding, enlarging our empathy for humanity, and sometimes telling a rollicking good story. That is never boring. Thank you. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for a half hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Great Discoveries. Jenny Hale Pulsifer gave her message entitled Indiana Jones in the Archives, The Art and Adventure. Speeches on Finding Center are often edited for broadcast. Find links to the full talks and access the rest of our Finding Center episodes on the free BYU radio app, available wherever you get your apps. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.